Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, so, I'm going to introduce, actually, our, our host, Stephen Rains, is going to be here um, uh, facilitating the reading for Lady Business tonight. Um, I want to mention that he has a workshop coming up uh, for uh, gay and lesbian seniors, uh, writing in, is it poetry specifically, Stephen? And it's free, that's important, and you can mention the date and time for us up here. So Stephen is a poet and educator who does workshops for, for folks uh, like yourselves, and everybody, I think, is very excited to have uh, have him here. We have both his book, Inheritance, and an anthology that he's edited at the desk um, after, after the reading. So go ahead and welcome Stephen Rains and the women from Lady Business. just occurred to me, I'm a male introducing uh, an anthology called Lady Business. Um, so I'm honored to give an introduction to today's reading um, from the Lady Business anthology. Both Cassandra and Rana have been students of mine in an autobiographical poetry workshop I've taught for over five years at the Gay and Lesbian Center. And they're both in the book I edited of poetry from that workshop, My Life is Poetry. A few weeks ago, I officiated a lesbian wedding to a couple that I introduced. And this morning, I kept thinking about, about that wedding and my role in it. Publication in an anthology such as Lady Business isn't really technically a marriage, but since that wedding isn't legal in the state of California, I guess neither was it. And, and marriage is a deep commitment that means choosing what we love every day. And a writer's life is like that. Cassandra and Rana, though they're not romantically linked to each other, um, their lives have become married to the craft of writing. Being in a prestigious publication like Sibling Rivalry Press's Lady Business is a symbol of that commitment. Uh, it's a symbol of what they love. I introduced the newlywed couple I married, and Rana and Cassandra were introduced to autobiographical poetry in my class. With both successful situations, I can't take credit. <laughs> we make introductions and then the rest is up to the magic between them. For Rana, the magic of writing included deep reflections on the avenue of fashion, black silk, and tangerines. For Cassandra, there was the mystery and magic of her father, fire, and winter. 
Cassandra and Rana have been in countless classes of mine delving and and delving and deeply to emotions and finding the language to adequately express them. Both of these poets have labored over words, syntax, and line breaks, but most of all, there has been the labor of disclosure. Their poems have bold declarations and saddenly shocking truths about their past. Creative endeavors aren't encouraged in our society, and to do so with heart and great skill is a special kind of accomplishment. Lady Business is a publication by Sibling Rivalry Press, an independent publishing house based outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. The press's mission is to develop, promote, and market underground artistic talent. They're also the home of Asarakis, which I know is quite a name, um, the world's only print journal of gay male poetry. Lady Business is the lesbian counterpart or they also call it the sapphic sister of Asarakis, that was the name. Um, poet Brian Borland founded Sibling Rivalry Press. He's also the astute editor of Lady Business. Cassandra and Rana's poems were selected from a highly competitive submission process. Borland chose these poets for their originality and care for the form. So today is a sort of wedding, but it is but it is also a romance where we as friends are able to witness the culmination of flirting with form, rubbing up against constraints, caressing language, feeling up metaphor, <laughs> and kissing the deepest known truth. You as attendees get to sit here and bask in, and bask in the glow generating from the readers and their love of writing. So I want to thank you for coming out today to witness this. And our first reader of the day is Cassandra. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. I, you know a tiny bit about me? May I know a little tiny bit about you? Could you just raise your hand if you've ever published? Anyone? Oh my land, there's five, six people, fabulous. And how many of you are closeted poets or writers? <laughs> and how many of you have ever written at all? Oh, great. We're all among friends then. <laughs> so, um, when I was really little, I, um, I always knew what I wanted. And it started at two when I would slide like crazy over the smooth hardwood floors out of the clutches of my father. And then when I was five, I would run through the mustard up to here and get this yellow powder all over my blue uh, jumpsuit. And then when I was seven, I would grab a hold of the umbrella and up in Ventura and spin around in the east wind. And then something happened. I still don't know what it is, but my poetry does. And somehow, in writing the poetry of whatever happened after seven, something got healed. And that's the power I find of poetry. My first poem is how poetry came into my life. Late October of my life, 
poetry waited long until I, a fertile field ready for plowing, yet again before the frost. Poetry fierce in deep folds of far mountains holds breath until I lie down, sink into the earth, ready, for, ready willing for seeding before winter. Then poetry rolls into thunder, lightning stabs blank book, thrusts pinned to my hand, storm blows as force to lift high, me up out of the muck to ride the great winds, a rather tsunami of words, my song long hidden, denied until I lay myself down in fields to lie follow. Wait until yielding, allow rotting and wilting, till spring called forth to move into the world of word, ink to pour out of my veins, rip open the page and weep into paper, tear up my soul, ignite the healing. I shall yay, yes to the beat, the melody of words, the harmony of music and poetry to tame wildness until it does not. Then again to lie down in earth and die until yet another spring. Has any... <laughs> Has anybody retired and ever felt like they were lying fallow in a field and sorry to say it, but just rotting away and they're ready to be planted in something really new to be born? So um, I wrote this poem. There's four parts. I'm going to read just one part. Um, I always thought I was sexually abused by my father, and I just couldn't accept it. And but it always nagged away at me. And um, another part of me thought, "Don't even th go there. Don't even think about it." And um, but when I wrote this poem, something felt acknowledged. Some little cells in my body and some little spot way deep in here felt acknowledged and that felt like it was enough and I still don't know. Unclaimed memories of my father, part one, my father's shadow. I am a flamethrower, a starving dog gnashing on my father's shadow, his flesh yet in my teeth to tear away the pain. Things I do not know wrench my mind as sign language struggles to be deciphered of a mewing, bleeding child. Wisps of father upon the farthest wall where fingernails drag deep, sliding down through stone. Blood red scars unreadable to all. I wrench neck of dragon, leap upon its back, shout keeper of darkest secrets. I ride your roar into my past, suck fire that I may know the truth. Did it happen? But baggage lies still against the farthest wall. Unclaimed, passengers gone home as baby girl in basket floats decades all alone.
I come to grab her from the river, raise her high upon the thrusting, heaving beast as we ride into the sea, throw net acro out across the waters, call up shards of me and him, the daddy that I love, lost fathoms far below where memory lies as death, waiting on the ocean's darkest floor. Well, Ron and I thought it would be fun to uh, read something from another poet of these 12. And I like this sexy one. Gives me shivers. Teresa de la Cruz is, uh, words just fly at her and they wait around her and like shiver and shake until she commands them to lie down on paper. And you'll find out in this poem what happens next. Because of a few poems, because of a few poems, women have taken their clothes off for me. <laughs> they love to rub my words all over their naked bodies. It makes them smile in their own different ways. I've seen them all, pretty girls I mean, some in super lover costumes, some with clever tricks. This one girl entered my pinky with her pinky. She cruised my palm through inward knees with her clammy skin and dirty nail the end of summer had begun. Another girl wanted love in a dark room. She was a slap shot, and my shirt still has the fixer stains. I saw one woman shimmy shake out of her dress, and after one of my haikus, she was also 17 syllables, and her purple walls collapsed in seconds. Oh, that must be her. <laughs> I didn't plan it, really. <laughs> Be <laughs> because of a few poems, some, some women, women became slow bullets needing to test the waters of organic sense senses and pace around their flickering curiosities. One particular woman was kind enough to share a mental backfire with me. She was the worst paper cut between all my webs. She was a particular flicker, this particular way about her. And I'm sure, I'm still not sure what really happened. But the current woman, this, this last woman, is a slow chemical reaction. She's been writing for days, keeps me searching for pens. She loves words, the things they say. My words love her, with her lashes like line breaks and her mouth like an inkwell. She's still piece by piece, all the beautiful words unfolding. Water, water, water. Thank you. Thank you. Can you open it for me? Thank you. Boy, that was a hot one. I gotta wet my whistle. <laughs> hmm. Inkwell. 
So, um, my father was a school teacher and we went camping every summer for two months in the Sierras. And those were the days you, you could go for free. You just had an entrance fee to Sequoia, Yosemite, whatever. And you could stay for the whole summer. So we, we, we would invite my best friend. And this is about night in the Sierras. It's not sexy, you know, unfortunately. Long ago before silver, there was the green spring of my life when nights were filled with music and the fragrance of pine and campfires. Fire fingers clicked tart lemon air, bleeding out sorrow of slender souls. We sang long, set till cold, doused fire, watched thunderheads of stars, rumble night skies as great dragon forest breathed, slow switched its tail, half crawled our spines. We shuddered, left steamy embers to crawl into the belly of our sleeping bags and smile. Thank you very much. I have one last, and this actually is the only poem that's not in our book. Um, for the last five years, I've gone to writing classes also. And in those writing classes, people kept saying, as I wrote prose, they would say, you know, that's really poetry. And then finally I realized it's prose poetry. And this is this, I really love this writing I want to share with you because it's really about the four teachers that encouraged me and brought forth really the water of words from a deep place in the desert that I had no idea were there, this well of water, and they helped me bring it up. And so I wanted so much to share with you because it's, it's really about one of the teachers, but it's about all four of the teachers. And I think it's about all of our teachers that have inspired us and impregnated us with um, our own self, what's really there and we may not know about. So this is called The Writing Teacher. I sit down beside her as someone holds, I sit down beside her as someone hands her a paper of a tale well told. Our class ready sits sharp at attention as our teacher responds with heart and her mind. But I cannot listen. I must write my own story of her four fingers spread wide across a thin, tough hip bone, anchored by a thumb, hooked at the back, elbow cantilevered, her arm continuing up to a willing, weighted shoulder. The other hand curves its fingers into a fist, placed solid on the smooth beige table. Below, black sponge fabric wraps snug, a leg slung long over the other. Her foot is bare. 
It jiggles with each word, punctuating phrases with a happy leap forward, there under the shadow, under the table. I do not see her face, only the right hand suddenly open to lines and cross-hatchings, all deep and profound. Pronounced. It is a hand that could hold a pot molding wet clay, or hold a cello humming, or raise a frayed bird shivering to lift off into blue sky. Now both hands join, slow they move with her words spreading and gathering, they leading our teacher, showing the way, fluttering and flying until they are tired and collapse on the table. Then there is her hair, falling as water pouring off the sheer cliff of her mind, with tiny hair threads breaking off, spattering and giggling, and largely unseen. All the while, there is her presence, calm and steady, a radiant blaze of being, fitting into form of teacher, magician, and closeted wizard. And we students respond, obedient, we pick up our pins, lower our heads, and as hound dogs, whiskers twitching, we chase our memory into the dark mystery of ourselves, where tangles twist thick, and thicket holds back as we push into our own inner blaze and we claim our shimmering beauty here in the grand forest of our lives. And <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It is so much fun you all came, all these happy faces. And I'd like to introduce you to Rana Maggie, who's going to be a real special treat for you. And she's in this book. Many thanks to Skylight Bookstore for supporting our reading from Lady Business, and to Brian Boyland, our publisher, and special thanks to Stephen Raines, an extraordinary poet and teacher of poetry, and of course to Cassandra, my fellow poet. I'm going to begin with a poem uh, from Lady Business by Sally Bellarose, a fellow poet. Sally's the author of a new book called The Girls' Club. And I picked this poem because it reminds me of the fall. It's called Rumors. Geese circling raucous, leaf-taking, V-forming and fading from view. You lean on your hoe, listening as their voices recede to one, softer and sadder as they go. The flock taking something of you with them. And as you follow the last rumor of sound, the honking that mocks and makes beautiful your loneliness. So I'm going to read a series of poems about my family. 
my Russian Jewish grandparents immigrated around the time of the 1905 revolution and settled in Detroit. My grandfather was blacklisted for having gone on strike at an auto parts plant, so my father and his siblings grew up poor. This poem is for my father. It's called Shiny Shoes. You were poor then. Pennies fought for bought the heel of bread. A few more sandwich meat. One pair of shoes, one black suit, split between two. The welfare woman knocking on your door. Always that fear she'd take away home. When your mother's heart gave out, they put her in an asylum. In Detroit, they'd lock away the poor, like numbered people penned in camps. Kept her there until she almost died and gave her back to you broken. TB left you on Northville's bed. Single rose stems remembered each one as they died. Somehow, through those youthful days, you survived. From all that, you taught us you have to keep on. You kids don't know what it was like, you'd tell us. We didn't want to hear your stories of how it was. We were young then, born from newer cloth, walked in shinier shoes. Detroit was an integrated city which was divided along race and class lines, a city in which there were race riots on Belle Isle the year that I was born, the first year of the baby boom. Round pie. So circumscribed and round those childhood days like the pie tins grandma pulled from the oven. Green apple slices bubbling over oven brown crusts. Layers of sugar piled on top. Wedges of days layered with polite dresses, saddle shoes and ivory soap. Post-World War. Round seven-day weeks that folded one day into another, circled and contained the family world in which I was raised. So hard they tried to separate our lives <clears throat> from the war, concentration camps, and industrial waste. Chrysler's showcase in glass windows around town while factories lined the city's core. Fords and Dodges steering their ways along the boulevards as Sputnik roamed the skies. Downtown, near the Detroit River, newspaper-strewn chain-link fences held in the poor, while in red brick houses on the northwest side, behind double-paned windows, we stood safe from the cold. I grew up around the corner and across the boulevard from a wealthier neighborhood, the Avenue of Fashion. Along Livernoy near Seven Mile, around the corner from our Detroit house growing up, women richer than my family shop for dresses and hats, shoes and scarves and silk stockings, get their hair done at Franklin Beauty Salon, and have their fingernails point painted post-war canary red to match their lipstick. Beautiful women, rich women, the kind who spend afternoons playing bridge and don't have to work. Those women whose daughters I go to pass to her elementary school with, whose everyday maids take Thursdays off. And on that day, and every Thursday, their daughters go to Townhouse Restaurant for lunch. 
I beg my mother to let me go with them and be like those girls who live in the storied brick houses on the other side of Livernoy, who get their hair done weekly, eat greasy hamburgers and french fries, play love and marriage on the jukebox, and talk four at a table on Thursdays at noon at Townhouse Restaurant before returning to Mr. Matthews' sixth grade class. Those girls, Marilyn, Candy, Diane, have money and are beautiful, wear pretty new clothes and go around together at school. I want to be just like them. I want to wear the skirts and matching sweaters they wear, eat what they eat, live in their brick houses. I want to be one of them. But we're not like them, honey, my mother tells me. You shouldn't compare yourself to them. You don't need to be like them. We're different, she tells me. Different than those girls who live on the other side of Livernoy, not our side of the avenue of fashion. Um, these next two poems are about family and kind of the surrealism of memories, the flowers of youth. Somewhere in the middle of the night, even though I try to chase away dreams, the stories as we left them hang alive in the air. In that city exists the ghosts of my dead. There where the shadows drift on the air, people once family appear again alive. Tables set with china cups and crystal bowls, chairs covered in white damask and cerise colored silk. In that city of memory, the words speak again. The you shouldn'ts and we don'ts mother taught when I was small. Feelings girls shouldn't have. Red dresses good girls shouldn't wear. Folding towels in three, clothes pinning sheets on the line, tables and chairs, linens and dough. In that city endure the ghosts of my dad. In that city of memory, my father returns, slams the front door, and yells about work that day. My apron grandmother washes dishes silently at the sink and wipes shaking wet hands along a worn flowered cloth while I twirl in the yard amidst the lilacs of youth. You know how we all say the objects from people in our family, the lockets and pictures and things like that. This is called the objects I keep. I have their things in my drawer, the rings and coins, watches that once ticked with hands that spun around, turquoise wedding rings and bracelets of beads. They are dead, but their stories float about in dreams. Like a paleontologist, I scratch memory from bone. Grandma's dresser next to mine in the same bedroom. I remember opening her drawer, fingering each piece, a black jeweled star that hung on a chain, silver filigree ring that sat inside a box, that necklace of pearls, how it reclined, satin cushioned in a blue velvet case. She wore it on those few special days. I do not remember taking the scissors in hand, nor do I recall putting my fingers inside the loops or the clip of tin blades as they slid between the knots. Grandma at the sink, chopping dinner vegetables along the old wooden board, holds up the knuckle she'd cut with that knife, her finger, her hand, the blood. My mother wraps a cloth around the place where the knife has cut. 
A child is cutting a cord, separating each bead from its place in the chain. One between one, she severs the knots. I stood silent when mother asked if it was I. They are dead now, mother, father, and grandmother. I still have their things. Pearls I've hung around my neck, mother's gold pin on my jacket lapel, the knife in my kitchen drawer, its serrated edge. I'm going to switch gears now and read about love and sex. (laughs) For tangerines. She'd stride that tree, a sure-footed girl boy pulling until flesh released stem from tree, and climb back down, full cupped hands filled with fruit. One by one, she sectioned tangerines upon white sheets of Belgian lace. In bed, when she fed me tangerines with her tongue, enticement lingered along the breast. Nibbling back at morsels of skin, she'd wait as love's fruit dropped into her hands. Ah, to be licked with the juice of tangerines, and after make love to quench the thirst. One of the things that I love about this anthology is that Brian had the foresight to include poetry about family, love, aging, life, and death. Here are two more poems about love. Musings on clay. I did not know the sculptures living in her room. Strange how she molded those pieces of life, primal forces fixed yet alive. Surrounding all this, there were her hands. She molded pieces of life, saucy dancers, voluptuous women, mothers and babes. With her hands, she mused on women far into the night. Sensuous dancers, voluptuous women, mothers and babes. Limbs curving upwards, encircling life dance. How she loved women far into the night, caressing, carving, and casting her clay. Okay, my last poem is called Silk. Black silk, smooth between fingers, reminds me of her skin. The way I'd run my hands from her shoulders down along her breast to her nipples until they were hard, down along her belly, down to her clit. The way she'd undulate and move like a palm tree swaying in a tropical breeze when we made love against that wall. How her sounds of oh and touch me here rose above the whirring ceiling fan. The way we'd come onto one another like lusty animals jumping at each other again and again and growl. Those sounds reverberating in the night air across spikes of red ginger and white plumeria blossoms. Hot humidity cooling us as we made love in its breeze. I can see us lying there on that white eyelet spread, black silk shirt opened out onto white eyelet cloth. How she'd slip it on, button by button, and lick me with her tongue as we undid each. Red palm leaves, the shades of inner lips, pulsating against vaginal walls. Wooden pineapples framing us along the bed. Behind us lay the blackness of the night. 
The two of us wrap together in darkness as pink palm leaves enfold lovers inside a silk Hawaiian shirt. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.